Hey y'all, what if you really could change your life? If there was a way to be healthy and intentional in every area of your life? Good news, there is. And we show you how each week on All of You Whole. Hosted by me, Caroline Fossil, entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and speaker. Every episode is an in-depth look at how to help you get unstuck, be brave in your life choices, and have a meaningful life all either from my own experiences or from the experts I interview. My goal is to help you build a healthy, connected, and intentional life that fulfills your greatest purpose. Today, I am so honored to be joined by Dr. Peter H. Green, who's the director of the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. Dr. Green received his medical degree from the University of Sydney in Australia. He completed his residency and GI fellowship in Sydney, and then he became a research fellow at Harvard Medical School and in the gastroenterology department at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. Dr. Green is the world-renowned specialist of celiac disease. He has done so much research when it comes to celiac disease, and I know this because I've read pretty much all of his studies, which is a lot. I totally recommend it. So today we are going to talk about a lot of the research not only he has done, but other physicians in his field have done as well. And so we're going to talk about what is celiac disease? How is celiac disease triggered? Does there have to be a genetic component to it? And then additionally, how do you test for celiac disease and how do you move forward after you get a diagnosis? This is such an important conversation. And I'm so honored to be with Dr. Green today because both me and my two kiddos are gluten-free and we have a gluten sensitivity. So this concept and this conversation is really near and dear to my heart. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Green. Welcome to the show, Dr. Green. Your work has been so influential and I'm just so honored to have you here today. Thank you very much. Amazing. Can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do in your work? Yes. So I'm Peter Green. I run the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University, and we've just had our 20th anniversary, actually. been very interested in celiac disease since the 1990s. I'd learned a lot about it in Australia where I went to medical school and found that there was not a lot of interest or knowledge in this country. Right. So I always diagnose it more than my colleagues and have an interest in doing research. So we see a lot of people uh, with celiac disease, with gluten intolerance. We do a lot of research. We're interested in quality of life, quality of diet, all aspects of celiac disease and gluten intolerance. We have like five adult gastroenterologists and three pediatric gastroenterologists mm. that work in the celiac center and two expert dietitians and interest in looking after people and making sure people are happy and healthy. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you've done such amazing work in this field. So for someone who is listening to this and they've never heard of celiac disease, can you tell us specifically what is celiac disease and what does that really mean in the body? Yeah, so celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. It's a unique autoimmune condition 
in that we know the environmental precipitant. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the other autoimmune conditions that are common, like type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or vitiligo, alopecia, etc., etc., don't know what the environmental precipitant is. So to have celiac disease, uh, you've got to have particular genetic makeup, and that's those genes are very common, 40% of us have them. You've got to be eating gluten, and like 95% of us eat gluten, but only 1% of the population gets celiac disease. So mm-hmm. that indicates that there are environmental factors that are important right. and other genetic factors. And so when someone has celiac disease, so firstly, it's pretty common. It occurs in about 1% of the United States population. Right. It's higher in other countries and lower in other countries. Like Australia has a very high rate. Scandinavian countries have a high rate. Countries like Germany or Africa have a lower rate. That's Southern Africa. Some of the highest rates in the world are in Northern Africa. So it's common. In the United States, only about half of those with it are diagnosed, which is a Mm. very low rate of diagnosis. It's a well-defined order that's actually easily diagnosed if doctors think of it. There are blood tests that are positive, and it's recommended that people get an intestinal biopsy. There are guidelines in Europe that advocate making the diagnosis without a biopsy, but they're very strict guidelines. And Mm. people come along and say, I have celiac disease and I don't feel better. And one of the most common reasons for that is that they actually don't have it. You know, they've been misdiagnosed. Right. It's an unfortunate thing that there's no medication available for it as yet, which has forced it into the realm of, like non-traditional medical practitioners. Right. And often that's not evidence-based medicine. Right. So people with celiac disease, they typically have elevated antibodies, and they're antibodies to tissue transglutaminase, which is an enzyme we all have, ubiquitous enzyme. So that indicates there's autoimmune, that you have an antibody to a body component. And it results in inflammation in the bowel and shrinkage of the little finger-like protrusions called villi. See, our small intestine is like 22 feet long and it's reduplicated. Like we didn't really evolve to eat very much. The surface area is very great to maximize absorption of protein, Mm -hmm. carbohydrates, et cetera. So... In celiac disease, you get shrinkage of these little villi and malabsorption. Right. It doesn't mean people are underweight. They can be obese and have celiac disease and be not very well nutritionally. So the diagnosis is typically made with taking blood tests and then an endoscopic biopsy, and then one adheres to a gluten-free diet. And uh, as a result of that, patients get better. Sometimes they don't get better, and we've got to find out why that is. A common reason for them not getting better is that they're not really avoiding gluten. Right. What's happened in a worldwide basis is that this gluten-free diet became very trendy, and 
between 2005 and 2015, Google Free Diet became the most Googled diet. Yes. Amongst like 12 different diets that include like veganism, Mm -hmm. organic food, low-carb diet, South Beach diet, etc. Celiac disease was the most prominent diet just in like about 10% of the major areas and it increased to about 80%. So for some reason, gluten-free diet became the this trendy And in fact, we don't think a gluten-free diet is a very healthy diet, especially when it's not managed by an experienced registered dietitian. Mm. Like it's quite common for us to find vitamin deficiencies in individuals on a gluten-free diet Hmm. because wheat flour is fortified. Wheat flour is fortified with vitamins. Now that came on after the Second World War, like universally around the world, wheat flour is fortified. And one of the main reasons for that was to stop birth defects due to folate deficiency. Right. So now wheat flour is fortified, but other gluten-free flours such as rice flour. Right, they're not. So we don't advise people to take a multivitamin we advise people to have vitamin levels measured and then go back to the dietitian to find out how to make that gluten-free diet a healthy diet. Because yeah. it can be healthy, right. you know, but it's low in fiber and in vitamins. And then recently we showed that people on a gluten-free diet typically have ultra-processed food. It's not a very healthy thing. Sure. Yeah, the temptation is to go to all of these gluten-free packaged goods and stuff like that to kind of recreate some of your favorite foods, for sure. So I've really condensed all this stuff about celiac disease just a couple of minutes. And Yes, you know, absolutely. But there are a lot of questions that people have and people are floundering around. Like, it's very interesting. Like, most of the experts in celiac disease in the United States come from somewhere else. Italy, France, Canada, even. There aren't that many, Australia, there aren't that many homegrown celiac experts. And that's an interest. And there aren't very many celiac centers. Like if you have cancer or if you have oh, a right. disease, every hospital is trying to they have a cancer center. But no one particularly wants to look after celiac patients because it doesn't bring the bucks into the hospitals. Mm-hmm. There are only like a few celiac centers in the country, which is right. surprising. And that compares with a country, say, like Italy, in which every city has a celiac center. Wow. Because they have to be certified so that they get the free gluten free food. Like in many countries, a gluten-free diet is a prescription, and therefore it's supported. Like, oh. like the National Health Scheme in the United Kingdom will give people gluten-free food as part of the prescription. Um, wow! And you can get food. You can get like monetary subsidies in many countries because it's a prescribed diet. 
Wow. Oh, my gosh. I wish we had that. <laughs> yeah, in this country, we looked at health care costs. Yes, I saw that study. And, like, health care costs go up prior to diagnosis, and then they go down uh, after diagnosis, mm. whereas the same study in the United Kingdom shows that it doesn't go down because they're paying for the dime. So the insurance companies shift the cost to the patient to pay for this increased, more expensive diet. So, mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned the genetic component to celiac disease. So I'm curious, does someone have to be genetically predisposed or is someone always genetically predisposed in order to get celiac disease? Yeah. Yeah, so you're born with genes. So once genetically predisposed, it's interesting because like 40% of the population have these genes. We just did a study with 23andMe, one of the yes. companies which does genetic testing for the general population, and it was 39% of people had HLA-DQ2 or DQ8, and they don't measure all the genes even. So you've got to have these genes, but by far the majority of people with these genes don't have celiac disease because mm. it's... 40% have the genes, but only 1% have celiac disease. But mm. so when someone gets diagnosed with celiac disease, we recommend that the family get tested. And the first test to do is the gene test. Because okay. if you don't have the gene, we think that you don't have celiac disease. Wow. So now, the, commercial, the main commercial labs in this country will measure the gene but it requires a bit of interpretation because oh, yeah. it's not all that clear when you get the result. And you can actually be negative for this DQ2 or DQ8, but just have half the gene and mm. have the risk. So, oh. so it's worthwhile getting tested if you're in a family that have celiac disease, but only 10% of people with celiac disease have another family member. It's interesting because we're not sure how to increase this rate of diagnosis of celiac disease because right. it doesn't really correlate with a lot of symptoms and many people are asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so once people have these genes, what is it that really triggers this autoimmune disease to manifest if only 1% you're saying actually yeah. end up getting celiac disease? Yeah, that's right. So there are environmental factors that right. are getting. And a couple were thought to be very important, like the amount and timing of gluten introduction. Mm. And However, big studies done in Europe showed that the timing of gluten introduction doesn't appear to be important. Hmm. Like for a while we were advising people to give a little bit of gluten between four and six months, mm. as the allergy people do. But right. that, showed, that showed that it didn't prevent celiac disease. And another study looked at get, holding gluten off for a year, and that didn't prevent celiac mm. disease. Countries of high rate of celiac disease like Sweden, it's thought that the amount of gluten given after 
in the second and the third year of life might be important. But one thing, delaying gluten probably increases the risk of celiac disease. Mm. So we advise now families are at risk that their children get gluten just like every other child. Mm. Whenever the pediatricians advise solids, you start to, to give a little bit of gluten. So what are other risk factors? Other risk factors are getting gastroenteritis, like mm. rotavirus infection. So rotavirus vaccination can lower the risk of celiac disease. Like there was a study that showed that the troops that went to Afghanistan and Iraq had got a particular kind of gastroenteritis, that they had increased risk of getting celiac disease diabetes. Oh, wow. So GI infections mm-hmm. seems to be important. Various medications such as those proton inhibitors increase the risk. Like a woman taking iron supplements in pregnancy increases the risk in one sleep. There's a ubiquitous virus that kids get, Rio virus, mm-hmm. uh, that increases the risk. So there are a number of risk factors. Like we thought that breastfeeding was protective, but it doesn't appear to be protective. Hmm. So there's very little to do. In a family with celiac disease, it's the genetic factors that are important. Right. Like if the kid is a homozygous, has two doses of this DQ2, like 25% get celiac disease oh, by wow. five. And there's very little one can do to prevent that. Like mm. if kids never got gluten, then they'd never get celiac disease. But that's totally impractical because <laughs> right. maximum is only 25%. So right. if it's like 80%, then you could say. By far the majority of people with celiac disease don't have another family. And it's very hard to relate any of these factors to an individual. You may see someone who say, oh, you know, I went traveling and I got traveler's diarrhea and then I got sick and then I got diagnosed with celiac disease. So you don't know if that episode of traveler's diarrhea just precipitated the diagnosis mm. or precipitated celiac disease because mm. it's got to start at some stage right. and, and be asymptomatic for a long period. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've mentioned the discrepancy between rates of celiac disease in other countries. Do we have any theories as to why it's more in Sweden than in the United States or why it's higher in other countries? Well, there's genetic factors. Oh, okay, yeah. There could be genetic factors. Like there are about 30 other genes that have been incriminated. So there are probably genetic factors in a country like Sweden but also infant feeding practices like giving, they give the children these wheat rusks to chew on as they get older. So there's maybe a lot of wheat products given like when the kids are age two or three, Mm. you know. So it's probably genetic and feeding practices. Mm -hmm. So there can be some complications from celiac disease. Can you walk us through what are those complications? Yeah, well, they're anemia and it's Mm -hmm. sequelae, fatigue, etc. 
osteoporosis with increased risk of fractures, the development of other autoimmune diseases, like one study mm. from France looked at people after the diagnosis of celiac disease and divided them into people that were adherent to the diet and people right. who were not adherent to the diet. And those that were not adherent to the diet had increased risk of attaining more autoimmune conditions. Right. And that might be like thyroid disease or ligo, mm -hmm. white patches, but it also could be multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, etc. Right. So anemia, osteoporosis, autoimmune conditions. Like we see a lot of people with neurological issues like peripheral neuropathy, you know, no oh. thinking of hands and feet. Infertility is an issue. Mm-hmm. Which is like there are a whole bunch of reasons why there's increased infertility. There's an increased risk of spontaneous abortions, you know, mm -hmm. miscarriages. Like one study in Italy showed that people with celiac disease were having less sex, so that can be accounted for mm -hmm. you know, fewer children. There are a whole bunch of different reasons why there's increased like less children to people with celiac disease. Mm -hmm. But a known complication and we've seen people who like have started to get IVF therapy right, right. and they diagnosed with celiac disease and we'll just say hang on wait a while and sure enough I can see you. oh Those wow yeah levels come down so there is an increased risk of malignancy but it's very small like it doesn't compare to the increased risk of malignancy with smoking. Mm. So, like, people worry about that, but smoking has a much greater risk to people than having celiac disease. Generally, people can feel fatigued. Um, you know, I always remember, I think about this one time my daughter, my little girl, said, how are you? She said, I'm sick, tired, and hungry. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I think, how do you feel? You feel sick, tired, and hungry. Yeah. It's interesting that people with undiagnosed celiac disease actually eat more. You know, mm. it's like their brain is being signaled that they like are starving and they eat more. They might be, they might not be underweight, but they could be eating much more carbohydrates. And right. so that's after the diagnosis of celiac disease, we're concerned that some people gain a lot of weight. And that's often because they just keep eating in the same pattern that they're eating mm -hmm. before. Because you can't help that. You can't control. That's very difficult to control. Yeah. And the cholesterol can go up. Mm. So there's anemia, osteoporosis, other autoimmune conditions, a slight increased risk of malignancy, especially lymphoma which is like a pretty common form of malignancy, but it's increased in celiac disease. And often people just don't feel very well, you know. Right. One thing that we've been interested in is quality of life because the diets can become the major overriding factor mm -hmm. for people with celiac disease. And they alter their life so much to adhere to this gluten-free diet and some of the behaviors are actually forerunners of eating disorders. Oh. And then increased eating disorders in people with celiac disease. And, oh, that makes sense. 
some people go crazy about the diet and we're kind of interested in what's responsible for the craziness. Is it the parent? Is it the patient? Is it the doctor? Is it the dietitian? Mm. We see people who see a dietitian and they come away like terribly fearful um, and anxious, you know, about this diet. So we're anticipating the development of therapies which Mm. people want it, they deserve it. Right. If you have a high cholesterol level, the doctors don't beat you up about the low cholesterol diet. They advise you to restrict the cholesterol, but you get a pill. If you get a cancer, you can get a pill and be totally cured. Or if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you can get an injection and it can go away. But with celiac disease, it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And people are constantly reminded about it because they're eating all the time, right? Right, for sure. That makes so much sense. I mean... Anytime that someone's focusing so, so intensely on what they're eating, I can see how it can transition into that hyper-focus, control, eating disorder arena. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So I'm curious, how and why do some people have asymptomatic celiac disease with no symptoms at all? Yeah, that's a very good question. If we knew that, maybe we'd get enough. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's like totally amazing to me. It's like a child can get diagnosed with celiac disease and you test the other family members and a parent can have sky-high antibodies, total villous atrophy, and feel not have any complaints. Right. Uh, Something that we're concerned about is like often people are asymptomatic, right? And they get diagnosed with celiac disease. And then after a period on the diet, if they get a bit of gluten, they can get very sick. And they weren't sick before. And we understand the mechanism of that now. And that's yet another reason why people should be able to take a medication to prevent that. Because, like, I wonder... But if we benefited someone like that, someone was asymptomatic and we told them that we have to see if you've got a disease and they have the disease and then they start to get sick. So it's like not a very fair type of thing because we think it's good to diagnose everyone with celiac disease because of these increased risks and complications, but they're actually going to get sick after a while. Yeah. Yet another reason why we think that these medications and there's we've been working on medications for celiac disease for twenty years actually. Yeah, are there any that are remotely close? Yeah, well, there've been two studies that have demonstrated that certain forms of treatment don't work, like the vaccine that was being developed came out of Australia that didn't work. The tight junction regulator, yeah, that didn't work. Mm. Um, so there are enzymes that digest the gluten. They're still being studied. And, like, we're used to using enzymes. Like if you have lactose intolerance, yes. you can take lactase pills. Yes. So there are glutenase pills 
that digest the gluten. Right. Um, so that's been continuing on and being studied. And then there are some of these medications that are used for like inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis, etc., that are, are being trialed. So like we're currently doing like three drug studies. And oh, good. So if people have celiac disease and want to get a medication, they should go in a study because mm. unless the studies are completed, you're never going to get a drug. Uh, right. And people say, oh, no, I don't want to get gluten. Well, you know, you can go into a study in which you don't get gluten, but we encourage people to participate. Like people on a gluten-free diet with celiac disease inevitably get exposed to gluten. Unfortunately, yeah. can control it. We got all the data, you know, that little food sensor, the NEMA food sensor. The NEMA sensor, yep. We got all their crowdsourced data because, like, when you use that, the information would go in. And we found that 30% of positive results were in gluten-free food, right? Uh, Label gluten-free in restaurants. And it was mainly for like pats, pasta and pizzas and yes. the, with the evening meal. So you can understand in a busy restaurant right? even if they're striving to do their best, they're going to expose people to getting gluten. And, right. You know, little bits of gluten every now and again do no harm, but it's the steady bits of gluten like on a daily basis or a regular basis that mm-hmm. maintain the inflammation. Right. And like one of the studies we did, we showed that people that don't heal have ongoing inflammation. They right. have increased risk of getting lymphoma. Actually. Right. So it's important to document, to my mind, to document that the biopsies get better. Yeah. So, so we advocate a follow-up endoscopy. Now, that doesn't typically happen in children, mm. but like when it does, you find about the same rate of not healing. People mm. typically get followed with the antibodies, and but the antibodies don't reflect healing. They just reflect that you're on a gluten-free diet. Yeah, that makes sense. So I saw some studies, and kind of you were saying, some people say, you need to do the blood work and the biopsy. Some people say you can just look at the blood work. Help us understand what does the science say about the diagnosis of celiac disease? Which parts are important? Sure. Something that I always say that unless the diagnosis is made according to the guidelines, Mm. you can always doubt the diagnosis. Mm. So currently... In this country, a biopsy is advocated. Mm. And, you know, it's like I saw someone recently, the young man was now 21, and the doctor mother didn't want a biopsy. And now we're not quite sure whether he ever had it. He's been like six years on the diet. So parents obviously think they're doing the right thing in trying to influence the doc in making a decision on how to diagnose. But unless the guidelines are adhered to, so here it's a biopsy. In Europe now, a positive blood test. 
but they're criteria, right? So yeah. the blood test has to be 10 times the upper level of normal, right? Mm. So if the antibody normal is four, it has to be 40 or above, mm. and then it has to be repeated on another blood sample. Okay. So you've got to have two blood samples that have a high value, and then you say you've got celiac disease and you can go on a gluten-free diet. I see people who have elevated blood tests of like just twice normal and they're told that they've got celiac disease and they should go on the diet. And then people don't get fully better, you don't know what they got. So it's just important to have the right criteria. Now, it's often not the patient's fault because the doctor said, oh, you've got celiac disease. Right. Go, go on the diet and then... Some people say, well, shouldn't I get endoscopy? And the doctors say, well, no, I think it's pretty definite. So <laughs> you know, it's a lifelong diagnosis, you see. Right. That's hard. So it has to be very certain to my mind. You know, all like face reality and say it's not for certain. And at some stage, you should go back onto gluten and have like a gluten challenge and see because that's part of the diagnostic evaluation there's a gluten right. challenge yeah you have to be eating the gluten to to see if your body's responding that's right yeah right yeah. yeah i saw in one of your studies the diagnosis and management of adult celiac disease the guidelines a super helpful chart of all the different blood tests all the different markers and biopsy and an algorithm of this is how you can figure out, based on the yeah. testing you've done, a diagnosis yeah. from there. there. There is this potential celiac disease, potential celiac disease. Mm. That's in which people like who get screen detected, they might have diabetes or they might have a family member and they're asymptomatic and they have a, a positive antibody but a negative biopsy. Yeah. And in that case, we wouldn't advise them to go on a gluten-free diet. Mm. We'd advise them to just be followed. And sometimes the blood levels, like in half the time, the antibody levels will disappear while still eating gluten. Oh, wow. So, so it's very worthwhile people, like, making sure. Like, if I would recommend people get told they have celiac disease to make sure the person who's telling them that knows a lot about it. And sure. Like seek another opinion from mm. a pediatric gastroenterologist or mm. an adult gastroenterologist or if they're fortunate. Like there are increasing celiac centers in the country. They were all clustered in the upper part of the country, but now there are some occurring down in the southern part of the country. Yeah. Where are you? I'm in Denver. And I actually think that our children's hospital has a celiac center. Like Denver, there are a bunch of docs in the children's hospital there, like Ed Ed Hoffenberger. And there's tremendous work being done. And by the age of, I think it's age 15 in Denver, 3% of kids have celiac disease. And that's all based on this DAISY study, like in which the, in the children's hospital there in Denver, they're identifying children 
at birth with this HLA, and it's an exceptionally high rate. It's like three or five percent of fifteen-year-old kids have celiac disease in Denver. And That's if, crazy. You know, I was describing these Google trends. The gluten-free diet Google trend started in like Austin, Texas, and in Colorado, in Denver. Yeah. So people are like interested in their health there, I think. And I think so. Looking for reason, looking for like ways to stay healthy. But I think that the people there in the children's hospital in Denver are doing an exceptional job. And these studies are amazing. They're part of international studies that are really looking at risk factors for getting diabetes and risk factors for getting mm. celiac disease. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so people are very lucky there. Now, yeah. but like on the adult side, there aren't people interested in celiac disease in that mm. part of the country. So hmm. the children get looked after very exceptionally well. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's good. So when we're talking about celiac disease versus a non-celiac gluten sensitivity, what really is the difference? Yeah. There's uh, experts all around the world couldn't understand what all this interest in gluten was. Everyone at the meetings were lamenting, what do we do with all these people who say that they're sensitive to gluten? Because it just was a dietary trend. And the diet, it has, of all those other diets like veganism, organic food, low-carbohydrate, they don't have a lot of medical validity, but a gluten-free diet saves lives. It's because it treats celiac disease and yeah. many people with autism, many parents of children with autism put them on a gluten-free diet. Most of the studies show that it's not gluten that people are sensitive to. It's the fructans in the FODMAP diet oh. that, that people react to get these IBS-type symptoms too. Now, yes. wheat, wheat does have these fructans in it. Mm. And on a very strict low, you know about the FODMAP diet? Yes, I do. And I've actually never made that connection in my mind that yeah. wheat also has fructans. It does. But they've fed gluten to people who are, gluten-sensitive and fructans to mm. people-sensitive, and it's the fructans that people react to. Now, I have seen many, many people with gluten, self-diagnosed gluten sensitivity, and there are some people who are sensitive to gluten. Mm. But the studies show that most people who self-identify as gluten-sensitive are sensitive to FODMAPs. Hmm. With gluten-sensitive individuals, like we like looking after them and we will, if people want to stay on a gluten-free diet, we'll advise that they follow with the dietitians to make sure it's a healthy gluten-free diet. Yes. Right? But if they're interested, we would challenge them with gluten and advise them to be on a low FODMAP diet. A low fat diet really needs an expert dietitian mm -hmm. because it's a very restrictive diet. But under the care of a knowledgeable dietitian, you reintroduce a lot of the foods 
And then there's this app that you can get that will identify the different parts of formats. Yeah, there definitely has been a huge push from a product standpoint for gluten-free products. I definitely have not seen as much of a push for low FODMAP products. There's some in the market, but nowhere near the items that are available for gluten-free for sure. There's actually now available a product like a lactase for the FODMAPs. Oh, Interesting. I hadn't heard that. So does it relieve symptoms? It helps digest the FODMAPs? It helps digest some of the FODMAPs. Now, Mm. it's being brought on the market by some of these experts in FODMAPs. I haven't actually seen the study, the efficacy of it. Studies have shown that people with celiac disease who don't get better are often, in addition, FODMAP sensitive. Okay. We don't want to restrict too much in the diet, right? Yeah. It's impossible to live. But I'm a bit concerned about dietary supplements because the dietary supplement industry is not regulated. It's not regulated, right. And various studies have shown that from, like, it was interesting how it came out of Canada and it was then reproduced in Connecticut and New York that dietary supplements, especially herbal products, up to half of them had none of the DNA in the main thing in the product. I know. It's just not a regulated industry. Right. So people often buy these products like turmeric and Mm -hmm. lower and probiotics because they think that they're beneficial to them but it's not a regulated industry and they're not quite sure. One can't be really sure about what you're getting. Now, this, yeah. um, this FODMAP enzyme preparation is supposedly gluten-free, but it's made like in this country. Like you don't, you just don't know. Because right. most dietary products, they bring together a lot of products that are made out of the country. Mm, Uh, Yes, the ingredients are sourced, yep. Yeah, then they're put together and then it comes out in a little bottle for you. Yeah. Just whether you can really believe the label is like questionable to me. Yes, and two, the manufacturing. Like my friends, I have a gluten sensitivity, so I don't eat gluten. My friends with celiac talk a lot about the manufacturing of products. So when it comes to oats that are on the same line as wheat and other grains, and then you have to find specifically gluten-free oats, or even when it comes to supplements, you see on the back, made in a facility that also processes wheat and crustaceans and all these other allergens. We tell people to not worry about that made in the same facility Mm. because gluten is not like a peanut sensitivity in which... Mm get a little bit of a peanut and die. Right. Uh, so that's not going to happen with celiac disease. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that, like, don't typically advocate people with celiac disease to use a dietary supplement because mm. if there is gluten in it, people take this stuff every day. Sometimes right. Sometimes times a day. Yes, that's true. And whereas you can get all the nutrition you need from food. Mm. And it's better to get it from food than from the bottle because yeah. you don't know. Like something, like you see a lot of people buy these artificial milks, right? 
like very trendy. My daughter wants almond milk. <laughs> yeah. Why do you want that? She said it tastes better than milk. And like all of that has got all these products in it to keep it uh, on the shelf. And like the health benefits of those products is not clear to me at all. Mm, sure. You know, totally. Not clear and yet people will swear by them without that evidence. Right. But yes. It, it's like an area that doesn't receive a lot of evaluation. Um, mm-hmm. It's like when they, like for a while I was interested in this, they were adding, they add tissue transglutaminase for food. When it's got enzymes, that means it's got this tissue transglutaminase. Mm-hmm. And so there's always a worry that that can activate a little bit of gluten in the food in in your food and make it more toxic. So, hmm. yeah, you know. that's a problem. Yeah. So, so the general recommendation, it sounds like you're saying, is if you have celiac, avoid gluten. Yeah, if you I have Avail yourself of a registered dietitian. Yes. So that your gluten-free diet is a healthy diet. Yeah, that's important. And then if you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, avoid gluten. But you don't think that gluten is harmful. The science doesn't say gluten is harmful for everyone. That's right. The science does not show that at all. And the science suggests that a lot of people who self-identify as gluten-sensitive it's not actually gluten, mm. it's something else right. in the food that we eat. Right. So, but it's worthwhile being evaluated properly. Like people, obviously, if they've got symptoms, they try to work it out. And I've seen many people who worked it out, like they had celiac disease and they didn't get help from the doctors before. Um and in fact, they went and they self-diagnosed celiac disease, and they're actually right because they went on like a restricted diet and then gradually introduced foods and didn't tolerate gluten, and they actually had celiac disease. Like a certain percentage of people who have gluten sensitivity will have celiac disease. Hmm. Um, the amount of people on a gluten-free diet has increased whereas those with celiac disease have not increased lately. Mm. So, so there are more people on free diet, and that must contain some people who actually disease. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So it, it's all a very interesting area, and there aren't that many people who are working on it. And right. It's very hard to get grant money to mm. deal with the funding of our celiac centre is actually through philanthropy. Wow. And we're very dependent upon people giving to the celiac center type of thing. And we have this series of lectures that are yes. I mean, they've been going on for a period of time and they we got world experts talking. Our next one is on very the third actually and our website, which is Celiac Disease Center of Columbia University, has this the lecture series is called Celiac Connect and it's open to anyone. You know? Awesome. 
Yeah, I'm excited you told us about that. And I'm going to listen to those lectures. And listeners, I will put that link in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Green. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much, Dr. Green, for being with us today and spending so much time with us. We appreciate all of your knowledge and expertise about celiac disease. Listeners, I want to be sure that you know that Dr. Green is offering a series of lectures open to the public, and that is through his Celiac Disease Center. You can go to celiacdiseasecenter.columbia.edu to register for those lectures. They are going to be tomorrow, February 3rd. If you are listening to this the first day that this podcast comes out, if you missed it, don't worry. They offer so many free, amazing resources at that website, celiacdiseasecenter.columbia.edu. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Thank you.